We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Thank you for joining us for part two of the conversation that we are having with Chelsea about her daughter, Kenna, and Angelman syndrome. In today's podcast, you're going to hear Chelsea kind of jump into the story where we left off last week. And, and educate us about Angelman syndrome from a parent perspective. She will also introduce some new diagnosis and some experiences that they've had within the last six months for Kenna and kind of the past since 2021 began. So thank you for joining us and you'll join Chelsea already in progress. So here I am with this four month old that just got diagnosed with a super rare, so Angelman syndrome happens in one in 20,000 live births. One in 20,000 live births, that's pretty rare considering. And we also just got diagnosed, a diagnosed super early. What do I do with this? I'm like, so now I just sit back and anticipate her to not hit her milestones, I guess. We kind of just sat on her diagnosis for a couple months. I mean, we really only told close family that we just got this diagnosis you know I remember I made a Facebook post that like we got a call from the gen- or from our neurologist but I never really shared for a while like what it was I needed time to research find support groups and things like that because I'm like I was lost once we sat on that we kind of got to know the Angelman community and so I'll explain Angelman syndrome for you really quick because it's, I can tell you, most people don't know what it is. And so, and I'm not really the best at explaining it either. I try my best, but it's very complex. That's actually why, that's actually why I love these podcasts is because we get it from the parent perspective. Right. This, this is what we know as parents. This is what our experience is as parents is. And so, um, so I'm actually super excited to hear you explain what Angelman syndrome is. Angelman syndrome is a chromosome syndrome. So basically she's missing a piece on her 15th chromosome. So she's missing a teeny tiny piece on her 15th chromosome on the maternal side. So on the side that I gave her, she's missing this teeny tiny little piece of her chromosome that results in her having Angelman syndrome. Now there is a sister syndrome called Prader-Willi syndrome which happens if you're missing the piece on the dad side of the chromosome. So for her case, it was on the mom's side. So that is where we get the Angelman diagnosis. Um, And so Angelman syndrome, you know, it's a neurological condition. So it causes epilepsy. Um, It causes lack of gait. So like the inability to walk basically. And the kids that do walk, you know, their gait's really unbalanced, so really uncoordinated. Um, lack of speech. Most of the kids with Angelman syndrome don't talk verbally. I mean, most of them, a lot of them use talking devices, but they're not verbal. Um, and then, you know, in Kenneth's case, it 
causes the feeding difficulties for her. Not all of the Angelman kids have that problem. And then it, it causes developmental delays and, you know, the things that come with that. And um, so it's a pretty complex syndrome and it's pretty rare. And there's a lot of research going into this syndrome, which is incredible. We have come across two amazing foundations that are strictly for Angelman syndrome. So you have FAST, which is the foundation for Angelman syndrome therapeutics. So the FAST foundation is kind of the foundation that's eager to find a cure. And so um, we're super involved with that as well. But then you have the Angelman syndrome foundation, which is ASF. And they're not so much they are fighting for a cure as well, but they don't really do the therapeutic side of it. They're really the, the family support system. Like they have a lot of opportunities for families to get grants and things like that. So grants and support, all of that kind of stuff. And we're, we are really good connections with both of those and the people that are involved with those. And it's really incredible. Um, when we first got the diagnosis, I mean, I felt so alone. I mean, I think any parent that gets a diagnosis of their baby, that is something that's so rare that you just don't know anything about. You're going to feel so alone. And, you know, my husband and I, I mean, we grieved for a really, really long, long time. And even once we shared, I mean, we still were just like in this grieving process. I mean, you're grieving everything that you thought your child's future is going to look like, what our family's future is going to look like. I mean, everything we knew, everything that we did, it changed within that one day. I'm like, oh, we did this. Well, I don't know what's gonna, what it's going to look like now, or this is what we had planned with this, you know? And so, you know, grief, and it's, I feel like grief is such a broad word because I'm like, you know, people don't utilize it in all the ways that it sometimes can be utilized, but I'm like, you know, we grieved really, really hard for a really long time for Kenna and Kenna's future. And I still feel like there's days where we have, we have good days and bad days, but um, finding the support that we found was what we needed. I mean, there are so many Facebook groups and connections and way to connect to families who kids have, and we call it AS for short, it means Angelman syndrome. So you'll probably hear me say AS because it's like <laughs> a little easier, but um, so we've, you know, we've gotten in a lot of support groups and there's a specific group on Facebook for moms with kids with angel men that are like six, it's specific, like six and under. So it's for the little guys. There's a group that's like more broad and you're going to meet families who have, you know, kids with angel men that are in their thirties, but then you're going to have people that have like Kenna, like she was four months old. I needed somebody that had a someone closer in her age that was walking right where we were at. And so I found this group, actually I didn't find it. One of the moms added me to it, but it's a mom, it's a mom specific group. And it's, we, we call it mom's kicking AS. So it looks like it's, <laughs> and so it's mom's kicking AS. So it's, it's one of the most precious groups and all those women, I mean, I've, haven't met any of them in person, but I feel like I have. Like we just connect at a different level and we all are walking this crazy wild journey together. And it's like everybody's journey looks different, but like we get it. Like we get the hard days, we get the good days. I mean, simply like 
laugh, like if your kid laughing. I'm like, it's like, it's just something as simple as that. But this, as far as the support groups go, I'm like, there's, there's a lot out there. And I just want parents to know that no matter your kid's diagnosis, like you're not alone. You just have to, you know, find the support. And if it does, if you don't find it, it will find you. I'm like, you, it'll be okay. And like, that's what I tell people. I'm like, you know, we were in a really hard patch, but I, I'm like, we're okay. Like we have the support from the people that we need support from. And there are a handful of Angelman kids here in Oklahoma. There's not a whole lot of Angelman kids. There's more as, you know, the time goes on, I'm like coming across more. There's um, a family specifically here in Mustang. So we're in Yukon, they live in Mustang and their son goes to Mustang and his name is Matt. But his mom I mean, immediately reached out to me. I'm like, you know, was right there supporting me. I found the Oak, like the um, Angelman Syndrome of Oklahoma group. You know, I got myself added in there, got my husband added in there. And, you know, it's, it's good to know that even though there's not a whole lot of families here in Oklahoma, there is still people here in Oklahoma. And so that's reassuring because, you know, there's some syndromes, right? You can't even find a family that has a kid with that syndrome. So as much as I hate that she has Angelman, I mean, it's bittersweet because the community in itself is just incredible. And we're so thankful for the support from our Angelman community. And, um, it yeah. sounds like you've found some really good people who are walking a very similar path and who are yeah. going to be there to mentor you through some of those days and then uh -huh. get to mentor some others through that. So. Yes. Yeah. And from what I've researched, I mean, Kenna may not be the youngest because you can, you could find out when they're in utero if you do genetic testing. Um, but from the people that I associate with and I talk to, I mean, she's the, I mean, four months is like really young and she's so far from my understanding, one of the youngest to be diagnosed with Angelman syndrome. And so that was kind of crazy too, because I'm like, I felt like I almost like couldn't find people that were like in the same boat as me because I'm like, they would question and be like, how did you get her diagnosis if she's only four months old? And I'm like, don't ask. I don't know. <laughs> I right. lucked well, out. Like, isn't that crazy to say I lucked out on getting her diagnosis? But I did. I yeah. mean, we, lucked, we lucked out getting it early because we were able to intervene at four months old. I mean, she started therapy at five months. And when most kids get to age two and then their pediatrician's like, oh, you're really behind. Oh, here, you need to go on the sooner start, but you're only going to get it for a year because you're going to age out in a year. You know, we started at five months. So a blessing in disguise, I guess, is the way I put it. And it's not the best blessing, but we're, we took it and ran with it. And that's, yeah. it's just crazy. I'm sitting here thinking of just <laughs> alternate diagnosis that may show up in some of the lives of mm -hmm. kids with Angelman syndrome, you know, like the failure to thrive, the, you know, some of those things where, you know, I mean, I've even heard of some abuse or neglect kind yep. of that have been abused of families who end up receiving a, a genetic type diagnosis and yeah. how scary that can be for some families. And it's really common in Angelman kids because it's not something they automatically think about at all. I feel like the more that we've 
been on this journey and as you know we're on year three now I do feel like I'm I see it more and I hear it more and I think it's just because I, I eat sleep breathe it but you know from the families I talk to I mean just getting misdiagnosed with autism I'm like that's the highest thing and you know and unfortunately our intimate kids do look and are act similar like autistic kids but it's not the same I mean, it's just, it's a totally different scenario. And unfortunately, parents, a lot of times their kids aren't misdiagnosed with that. And like you said, like the babies with failure to thrive. I mean, you know, if our doctor at the hospital wouldn't have pushed for, like wanted to do the genetic test. I mean, what a blessing that that doctor walked in and was like, oh, I want to do this. Like, we're grateful for that doctor because she ultimately got us a diagnosis. I mean, we would have probably been sitting around we probably, I mean, really, I don't even know if we would have had an answer at this point. You know, it's just crazy. Yeah. Can I ask you about the genetic doctor? You said that initially yeah. your neurologist said she's going to set you up with the geneticist and you're going to get in to see them. And then you mentioned that it came two years later. And yeah. I'm wondering if you can kind of address maybe why it took that long. Yeah. And is it something that families typically see? Is it just an overload of the system or did COVID play a role in that? Just kind of walk us through that a little bit. Um, so I think at that point in time, which was back in 2019, tw early 2020 was, of course, COVID happened, but this, I mean, we thankfully got in with our genetic counselor before COVID, but I think there was just an issue with not having a provider. So I think that issue has been fixed. So I hope that families aren't experiencing the, you know, year and a half, two year problem like we did but um from my understanding i think that's fixed because we see our genetics genetic doctor every six months so um sounds like they fixed it <laughs> we just got we just hit it at a bad time i think and, you know and unfortunately just from everything we've experienced that's how it is with a lot of specialty doctors um and it's unfortunate i mean it's just oklahoma doesn't have as many specialty doctors as some states do so we're really limited on the amount of care we have um i feel like they're they're trying to get that better but you know we only have so many and so and we have you know, unfortunately lots of kids that need to see specialty doctors and you know we've experienced lots of long wait lines and lists i mean even just this last year seeing an endocrinologist i mean we waited we waited eight months to see an endocrinologist so i mean unfortunately you know, that's just part of it. And I wish, I hope eventually that gets way better for families. Um, but yeah, that's, it's hard. That's a hard thing to have to sit and wait and yeah. wait and wait. It is hard. It is hard. Yeah. So, so tell me what your genetic, your meeting with the geneticist and what that looked like. Did they just kind of educate you? Did they kind mm -hmm. of talk more? Was it new information or have you already done a year and a half worth of research? Knew it all. So we had done a lot of research by that point and it, at that point my husband was able to take off work and so he came and we were both just kind of like chuckling under our breath a little bit because we're like she's she was so sweet and she wanted the best for us and she gave us all these resources and you know fast and ASF which is things that I've already talked about and um and I looked at my husband I'm like it's okay like we've, we've had time to do our research she's just you know just making sure that we have all of this stuff in a row and we have all these resources. Um, but something that she does um, is able to kind of do is give us a little bit more um, input because there is like specific Angelman clinics, um, not here in Oklahoma. There's one in Colorado. There's one in 
Houston. Um, we haven't been to one yet. Uh, it's kind of a process um, to get that approved through insurance, get it paid for. Um, but it is something that she, you know, mentioned, and that was something at the time I didn't really know about. So that was one thing that she was like, you know, there is specific Angelman clinics. We can go and see all these specialty doctors that only see kids with Angelman syndrome and things like that. And so that was one thing that we got out of the genetic appointment too. And another thing was um, we wanted to find out if we ever had decided to have another baby if this was something that could reoccur, if it was a fluke. So that was something we talked about as well. And after we did what we needed to do, um, it was ultimately just a fluke thing because of, they retested her genes and the way that hers is. So she's considered deletion positive. So um, for Angelman, there's like four different ways that Angelman can happen. Like your chromosome can be deleted. It could be like duplicated. It could be, there's, and I'm like I said, I'm not the best at explaining. <laughs> I'm like, we just know that Kenneth is deleted. And so she's considered deletion positive. That's just how the Angelman syndrome foundation and everything, um, you know, puts that, but she's considered deletion positive. And um, there's not really like, oh, if you have this, your outcome looks better. Or if you have this, your kid's gonna do less. I mean, it's not really that, um, like high functioning, low functioning. I feel like, I think that's all just depends on the kid. I mean, just kind of like any other syndrome. I mean, I do feel like Kenda, Kenda is at a disadvantage because of all of her health problems in general. Whereas I think if that she was, you know, a little bit healthier, and you know more of a and I hate I always hate saying like a typical angelman kid but Kenneth's kind of a rare angelman kid just because of her health problems <laughs> but I think that she would be a decent she would be doing pretty well because she she doesn't talk so she's three she doesn't talk um she can't sit up by herself unassisted she doesn't crawl um she um, doesn't walk, doesn't do anything like that, doesn't really bear weight on her legs. Um, I'm not saying she won't ever do that. Um, we've had a lot of setbacks um, that have kind of held her back from achieving those goals. And so um, our goal would be to eventually get her there. But most Angelman kids walk at some point. It's just really, really delayed. Um, you know, I've got some friends whose kids are Kenna's age and they're walking and using a talker. So that right there gives me a lot of hope because, you know, I think Kenna will get there eventually. We're just, we're just taking, she's just taking a lot longer to get there. Yeah. She's, a, she's a prince. We just, we joke around. I'm like, she's a little princess. She, it's Kenna's time all the time, no matter what it is. Um, but you know, through this diagnosis, I mean, it's definitely challenging and, ex you know, accepting the fact that you are now, like, this child's caregiver and, you know, that's kind of, like, crazy because, like, you already are the caregiver, you're the parent, but now it's, like, a different perspective because it's, like, man, I have to, like, really, like, do everything. We have to do everything, and it's, like, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow, like, to think about as the future goes on but we try to live in the moment we try to not you know think too far ahead because we don't know what Kim is going to do and 
you know, with her syndrome, you know, there's kids that there's even some that do talk a little bit. And so I'm not giving up. We don't give up all hope on her. Like the way that she communicates now <laughs> is a lot of grunting and yelling, but it's purposeful. I mean, she, she needs something. She grunts and yells at you. So I'm like, she, her receptive, a lot of the kids, they have really good receptive language. So like they can understand what you're saying. And so we really tried to talk to her like a three-year-old, like, you know, at, at the best we can. And we try to talk to her as if she can understand us. I mean, she can't tell us, but I'm like, you know, we can say, can I know ma'am? And she kind of looks at us like, oh, you just told me no. <laughs> and so, you know, we kind of learned that. And that's something too, that's kind of evolved through therapy. Um, because I told our therapist, you know, I'm like, talk to her like you would if she was talking back to you. I'm like, tell her no. Like, if she's doing something, she's not. And it's just so funny because she knows. She, you're like, no, ma'am, no. And then she looks, she's like, okay, I won't do that anymore. <laughs> 2021 has been a really eventful year for her. <laughs> I would say 2020, even with the pandemic in 2020, we had a pretty calm year, which is funny I say that because, you know, we're put on lockdown and everybody's like what are you gonna do you have Kenan I'm like what do you mean what am I gonna do I'm like we're gonna do what we've been doing <laughs> I like we we were already like living this you know isolated life because she really just was still pretty sick when COVID first happened I mean she's still she's still been pretty sick throughout all this but like it was just really funny how the perspective of like, we've been doing this. And so like 2020 for us was a pretty mild year for her health. <laughs> and we really like, 2020 was spent, well, the first half of 2020 up until, you know, that April when everything was shut down and like, we were doing lots of therapies and just trying to hit some fresh new goals with her. And the summer of 2020, she actually was sitting unassisted pretty decently unfortunately she's had a lot of setbacks that have taken that away from her but um so I know it's there this summer we actually kind of stepped back on her therapies and we're not doing as much therapies with her but initially she was doing speech PT OT feeding therapy all out outpatient therapy um but due to her health this year we've kind of taken a step back from all of that do you feel like the setbacks are a result of her not being able to go into in-person therapies at this point? Or is this so, more of a progression of what we're looking at as far as the Angelman syndrome? So her setbacks weren't because of the lack of in-person therapies. We felt like we didn't progress in, you know, summer of 2020, we, we were forced to stop in-person therapies and we were doing some virtual stuff. And really, we didn't see her regress from that. We just didn't see her improve. But um, we started back up in in-person like that September or August. So we got back into in-person therapies fairly quickly, even like in the middle of the pandemic. And I don't think it really had anything to do with that. Um, for her, she got really sick in October of 2020. And that was kind of our turning point of her regression. And um, she ended up getting some really bad stomach stuff, GI problems. And that initially is what's 
had her turn the corner and she's right now she's I want to say stable but we're still really tackling a lot of health problems with her which the health problems we're enduring really has nothing to do with Angelman syndrome um which is crazy because I'm like yes we have Angelman but we have a whole list of things that I haven't you know, and like I said, I've shared a lot of our journey on social media. And initially I started doing that back in 2018, whenever she was first in the hospital, because really I'm like, you know, she had that cardiac arrest episode and I'm like, I just put on face. I'm like, pray for my baby right now. Like, I don't care what you're doing. Stop and pray for her. And then it turned into like, people were like, well, what's going on? So then it like turned into like this whole thing where I'm like sharing and sharing and sharing. Well, this year, I kind of like, it was just so much. It was more even than getting her diagnosis of this Angelman syndrome because really I'm like, yes, we have this really big neurological diagnosis that's going to be lifelong. And, but this year alone in 2021 has really thrown us a curveball <laughs> with her health. And and it's crazy that none of it has to do with her syndrome at all. And it's so crazy. And so, you know, I haven't shared a whole lot of really what's happened this year. Um, and that's why I'm excited to do this. So, you know, that's why I'd love to talk more about that. And, you know, advocating for your kids. Because we got in a position where... I let my guard down and I was trusting doctors and trusting their word and doing things because well if this doctor's telling me to do it like it has to be okay when initially I'm like we're just sitting back letting her initially just slip right out from underneath us so she's got a lot of gut problems and she's always kind of had a gut problems just because you know she's been g-tube fed and unfortunately majority of kids with G-tubes, not all of them, but a lot of them get, you just kind of are like, your gut's just messed up at that point. I'm like, you're feeding directly to your stomach. Like you're, you're messing up how your system, symptoms, or your system is supposed to work. And so, you know, in October of 2020, she got a GI bleed out of nowhere. Not super like rare, but it was super rare for us because I'm like, why? You know, like what's going on? Hers was so bad that we were admitted to the hospital. She needed a blood transfusion because her hemoglobin was a seven and it should be like an, an 8.5 or higher or something, which seven, okay, isn't that low, but I'm like, for your GI bleed to be that bad that you need a blood transfusion and really, she hadn't been the same since then. And that was October of 2020. So she got, she had this GI bleed. And at that point, we couldn't get her stomach and, you know, gut back to baseline. She wasn't gaining weight. She initially in summer of 2020, so July of 2020 was the biggest and heaviest she was at 20 pounds, five ounces. And she was had just turned two at that point because her birthday's in May. 
So she, you know, in July, she just turned to um, 20 pounds, five ounces. That's not, not very big, really. I mean, for her, it was. Right now, she is at 19 pounds, three ounces right now. We're at a year, like in a year, that's, that's what her weight has done. And unfortunately, it's because of a lot of the gut problems we've had. But in October of 2020, we, we kind of had a situation where we were with the doctor that, and I trusted him for so long. I mean, he had been her doctor from day one and because I have lots of friends who go to him and I think everybody's experience with every doctor is different. Unfortunately for us, we felt like he wasn't doing what was best for her and was doing things like upping medication and upping feeds when she couldn't tolerate upping feeds and just things that weren't right and weren't sitting right with me. And then I remember it was like December of the early weeks of December, I had gotten in contact with a lady on Facebook that is in one of the support groups I'm in here in, through Oklahoma. And I reach out to her and I'm like, hey, who's your daughter's, you know, doctor? Who do you guys see? And she's like, oh, this person. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, tell me your experience because I have to get a second opinion. I don't have time to waste. You know, I'm like, at this point, it's clicking in my head. I'm like, something's not right. Why does my almost three-year-old weigh 19 pounds? Like, why are we not tolerating feeds? Like, why is she like, she thinks we're not right. And she's like, oh, you need to get in with the Dr. Reese. She's great. Just do it. You know, you won't regret it. You know, I sat on it for two more weeks. I shouldn't have sat on it for two more weeks. I didn't have two more weeks, but I did because I'm so like just heartbroken because I'm like, you trust these doctors. And, you know, that's something that I'm a strong advocate about. I'm like, trust your mom gut. Your mom gut knows your kid better than anything else. And had I known this from the very beginning, like this feeling that I have now, I think that Kenna's journey may have shifted at some point because I would have put my foot down. But like, as you walk this journey that you've like never been through before, you know, it takes learning and going through it to be like, oh my gosh, like something has to change. So I remember I am like desperate. So we call, I call our pediatrician. I'm like, please get a referral sent over to this other doctor. I have to get a second opinion. I'm like, there's something not right. Something is going on. I'm like, she had that GI bleed. I'm like, she's never been the same since. And I remember that GI's office calls me and they're like, our next available is in May. Kid you, this was in December. I'm like, I don't have that long. I said, I don't think my kid's gonna make it till May. I said, my baby is not gonna make it to me. I was like, what do I need to do? And they're like, I really they're, they're like, we really can't do anything. Like that's the soonest they have. Well, that's not the case because I made a couple phone calls and I know a person that knows a person who knows a person if I'm like, get Kenna in there now. I was like, we don't have time to waste, you know? And sure enough, I get a call. Hi, we have an opening next week. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you. You have to advocate and you have to fight and you have to push. And if that takes calling a person who knows a person who knows a person, I'm going to do it at this point in our journey. And, you know, at that point, we have been almost doing this for three years. So I'm like, 
something has to give. I was like, we have to figure something out. So this is what, you know, we've embarked on this new journey this year of like all these new health issues and on top of Angelman, which is still an issue, but you know, we get into this GI's doctor, this GI doctor's office and she is super great. I'm like, oh my gosh, like finally somebody's listening to me. We sat there for an hour and she let me just tell her from start to finish. And like, nobody's let me do that before. And she's like, you know, let's run a stool sample. How? Okay, that's the first thing any GI doctor should do if you've ever taken your kid for GI problems, you know, her old GI doctor refused. And had it had they not refused, they would have found what her current GI doctor found. So this is something that is bittersweet because I haven't shared this publicly. I mean, people that know me personally know what she was diagnosed with. Um, so Kenna ended up being diagnosed with C. diff. And so not super shocking. She lived her whole life in a hospital. What's shocking is we don't know how long she had it. We don't know how she tested positive but didn't have any symptoms because Kenna didn't have diarrhea. Sorry, TMI, but like when you're positive with C. diff, you typically have like this chronic diarrhea, like you're like, it's bad. You're usually hospitalized. And so she got diagnosed with that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, is it that simple? <laughs> like, is this it? Like, we just have an answer. Like she has an, a serious infection in her gut and it would have just taken one stool sample for her old doctor to be like, this is it. And this is how we need to treat it. But even when she was hospitalized in October of 2020 with a GI bleed and she pooped and it was black, the doctor told me to throw it away. And I remember I'm like, you're not going to test it for anything? Like, it's black. Like, don't tell me that's normal because it's not. And they're like, that's because she has a GI bleed. I'm like, and so that's where I go back. You have to advocate. I'm like, as a parent, I'm like, trust the doctors, but advocate. Don't stop. Don't let your guard down. And that's something my husband and I have learned over the last, even just the last six months, just this year. Like, we don't let our guard down anymore. I'm like, we are on our toes with every specialist we see, anything that's happening with Kenna, I'm like, I get validation for everything because I'm like, I've just let my guard down. And there was something as a C. diff infection that can be deadly. And unfortunately, we had creeped to that point with her. So she was diagnosed early January with C. diff. And her doctor's like, okay, you're gonna start this antibiotic. You, you treat C. diff with an antibiotic even though antibiotics can give you C. diff, <laughs> like it's so bizarre. And I'm like, okay, sure. So like we start it and we do it for four days and she won't poop. And so I call our doctor and I'm like, she's not pooping. She goes, oh no, the tone of her voice changed like within a second. She's like, Chelsea, I'm, I'm directly admitting her into the hospital. <laughs> yeah, you talk about it, huh? And she goes, we're going to directly admit her into the hospital because I think she has toxic megacolon. So what that means is that the C. diff infection had attacked her colon. And sure enough, her doctor was 100% correct. We got in there. They did an x-ray and her colon was four times bigger than it should have been. 
not filled with stool, infected and inflamed. And her belly was like the size of a basketball. Like, and she's a little tiny 19 pound baby with a huge belly. And it was the most bizarre thing we've ever experienced. And I'm like, so this is why, like she had a G-tube and I'm like, I vent her G-tube and her belly doesn't go down. She goes, that's because it's in her colon. It's not in her stomach, it's her colon. And so she ends up getting admitted. And the reason why we even got her admitted was because she had a seizure that happened between getting diagnosed with CDF and going through the treatment. She had a really, it wasn't a big seizure, but it was something that really like startled me. And I was like, oh no, I said something's not right. And that's whenever I called her doctor and she's like, oh, we're gonna direct admit her because you know her body is compromised now and now she's you know having a seizure. And so we got admitted. If we wouldn't have admitted her that Friday evening, she wouldn't have made it the weekend. Her colon would have ruptured. I mean, in two days, we had, we really had no time. And I mean, that, I mean, we just, we, with her journey, we just keep getting these situations that it's just like, it's mind blowing. And like, we overcome these like things where she, she shouldn't be alive because she's, you know, like, she's seriously a little miracle baby. Like, she's just overcome, like, all these situations where she shouldn't even be here and here she is fighting through it you know a little warrior baby and we've always called her that she's a little warrior girl and she's just so resilient and strong and even when she, I mean honestly this year January of 2021 was the sickest she's ever been even compared to when she was on a ventilator I mean she was the sickest she's been in this year than she had any other time and then on top of you know, that here we are getting admitted into the hospital with COVID, you know? And I'm like, it's insane. I'm like, not where we want to be, you know? And then January, the numbers were the highest they had been. And that alone is terrifying because I'm like, you know, at that point we were admitted at Baptist and it's an adult hospital. So you have you know, a lot of sick adults in there. And then plus you have a lot of sick kids. And then you have Kenna who's there for not for COVID. <laughs> you know, she's there because she's got other things going on. And so that alone, I mean, getting it put into a hospital during COVID, but not with COVID is kind of crazy. I mean, it's just something that like, unless you've experienced it, I mean, even just being in the hospital during this pandemic, I mean, it's crazy. And that wasn't the first time we've been in the hospital. We were in the hospital in October and that was still during the pandemic. And we had been in the hospital that summer before. And like, it wasn't the first time. So she got admitted with this C. diff infection. And I remember we walked in there and the nurses had blankets and towels laid out all over the place. Cause you know, a C. diff patient's gonna be having this like explosive <laughs> TMI poops you know but I laughed and I said oh that's not gonna happen I said my kid hasn't pooped in eight days at that point we had not pooped in eight days and they were like what I said yeah we're here to get her to poop we need her we need her to poop I'm like I don't know what it's gonna look like when it happens and so at this point she had a g-tube 
and she had had her G2 pretty much her whole life. Um, she is now has a GJ tube. So she um, no longer is fed to her stomach. Um, what happened when she got this C. diff infection was her stomach stopped working, basically. Um, it's doing a lot better now. And we are, tr we trial oral feeds, like we do feeding therapy. So she does get a little bit to her stomach, but she's primarily strictly J fed. So that just means we're feeding past her stomach, straight to her intestines, just to make sure that her stomach doesn't, you know, get upset because we don't want that to happen. It's, it's bad deal. But during that hospital stay, we, we were hospitalized for two weeks with this. Um, it just, she wasn't getting better. Like I thought she was. I'm like her, we would, we, first of all, they needed her to poop because that's the only way you get the toxins out. So they did seven enemas within two days of being there and she still didn't go. <laughs> seven enemas. I'm like, what in the world? Like her colon literally wasn't working. Her doctor's like, I need to get her in for an emergency like endoscopy. Like she needed to see what's going on. And so that's initially when we found out that everything, like her whole GI system had just shut down. Like she had chronic, um, basically it, there's a fancy word for it, but her stomach, stopped. It, it says like her stomach stopped working. And then like she had huge red lesions all over her stomach and like her intestines wasn't digesting food, right? Like there was like a whole list of things and it was all because she was just so sick with this toxic megacolon. And so they were doing oral antibiotics, which for her would be straight through her G-tube. So through her G-tube, they were doing IV antibiotics. And then like the enemas had antibiotics in it too, because they, that, like, seriously, it took all of that for, we did that 11 days straight before we even fed her food again. Like she literally didn't have any food for 11 days. And then we started trialing food to her stomach and everything would blow up. We would feed her and like a balloon and she'd just be miserable. It was like the worst thing I've ever been through. And I'm like, why is this happening? Like we feed her 30 mils an hour. That's an ounce an hour and her stomach would blow up. And that's when her doctor is like, what are we gonna do? She was like, she kept saying TPN. And I'm like, I'm like, please not TPN. I'm like, please no. I was like, no, no. I was like, we need to do something else. And I was like, what about a GJ? I was like, can we not try that? She goes, okay, we can try that. She goes, but if it doesn't work, like we have to get nutrition into her somewhere. And by the grace of God, we get that GJ in. The first, <laughs> unfortunately, it flipped. So like when they do that, they have to do it under radiology because you have to check to make sure that the tube goes down through your stomach into your small intestine. So they did it. They brought her back to the room and unfortunately like coiled up. So we started feeding her and it was feeding her stomach and it was coming out of her like G port. So like we were like venting her stomach to help keep her comfortable. And I was like, why is all the formula coming out? And none of the doctors were listening to me. And I was like, that's formula. I'm like, something's wrong. Well, sure enough, it flipped. And 
that happens. It's unfortunate. So they had to go back in and like not really sew the tube down into her jejunum, but basically like kind of clip it down in there because it just kept coiling up. And we just think because everything was so inflamed that it was just like rejecting it. But they got the tube down and it stayed. We got her fed and we found a regimen that worked for her and got her fed again through her J-tube. And all I know is that that was just like a miracle in itself because we were literally, I mean, the day before talking about TPN and nobody wants to deal with that. And if we've only ever experienced a pick line. So, and unfortunately, like when you have one of those lines, you risk infection and TPN is like really bad on your body. And it's really like a last resort. And I, I knew deep down we weren't at a last resort. I was like, there has to be, have to find a way because she had been on TPN, but that was like in the NICU and they do that for NICU babies like that first day. And that was it. Like we've never had to deal with TPN ever since. And, and I just knew we didn't, I just didn't want to mess with that. And thankfully we aren't on TPN right now. So we're still doing okay. But I know a lot of people don't, won't know what TPN is. So, um, but I think it's, it's definitely useful for kids that need it. I mean, there's lots of kids that literally don't have guts or their guts really can't work and they have to have it. So I think it, you, when it's needed, it's important. And when you, when it's like something like Kenna, I'm like, okay, we have to give her another shot because I'm like, her gut was working. That was the thing. And I kept saying over and over again, I'm like, but her gut was working. It just, it just can't resort to TPN. So we spent two weeks there um, at the hospital dealing with this infection. We seemed to get her better. We were discharged. It was like amazing. Like I don't need to be home again. And, you know, and during COVID, only at that point, only one parent was allowed up there. I'm excited to say that Chelsea has one more episode for us after this one. In her next episode, she will go further into her experience during her hospital stays while COVID was in play and what some of the rules were for her and her family. And she will also give us a really good glimpse at what her family looks like, what it looks like inside um, their home and, uh, and life. So we hope you'll join us for our next episode and thank you for being here for this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271 5072